Welcome to Memphis Machine. A Muddy Pig production. I'm Jonathan Bass. And I'm Carl Casperson, and together we're looking to show off the creative sights and sounds of Memphis, Tennessee. Amen. This is the last interview of our season, season one. Hope you've enjoyed Memphis Machine. We have thoroughly enjoyed making it and getting to meet some awesome creatives here in the city of Memphis, making Memphis pretty. And in this episode, we interview Opera Memphis. Ned Canty, director. And, and Michael music, Saker. Michael Saker, music director extraordinaire. That guy can conduct and play piano like a like a beast. Oh, man. His piano chops are ridiculous. I, I got to say, uh, you know, uh, I'm a little, there's a little nepotism, I think, uh, uh, in this uh, episode. Uh, my wife works at Opera Memphis. Yay, Becky. <clears throat> and I was a little nervous. I'm a little giddy at the top of this interview. You can hear it because I, I can't, I mispronounced Michael's name there. I, I, said, I think I said Michael Shaker. Oh, yeah. We yeah. get into the... Uh, yeah. Candlestick maker and candlestick maker. Yeah. Hope you enjoy. Yeah. So no offense, Michael. Well, um, and and also Ned, we just forgot his name all of a I sudden. I think so. It's the jitters when we, when you a start an bit. interview. Yeah. Ned's success with Opera Memphis is uh, intentional. Of course, he's. I hope he gleans some some things of how Ned's philosophy uh, of management is is working uh, for for that organization. Of course, this episode is brought to you by Snakebite Company. Makers of the original snake bite bottle opener and mamba bar tending tool. One hundred percent made in the USA. Snake bite loves making products and apparel for the happy hours, after hours, and weekends when it's your time to relax and just be yourself, Jonathan. Just be yourself. <laughs> Check them out at snakebiteco.com and on Instagram. Beautiful little church keys. We use ours every Sunday. Every Sunday. Every Sunday. Check them out at, at Snakebite Co. And also the gentlemen and ladies at Redwire uh, Audiovisual, a great company here in the Mid-South that can help you take your facility to its, its, its potential. Um, they are experts in audio and visual design and installation. Redwire Audio Video specializes in the design, installation, rental, and support of high-quality and affordable custom audio, video, lighting, broadcast, and control systems for worship facilities and large public venues. Reach out to Redwire Video at www.redwireav.com. And Is there another W in there? www. <laughs> <laughs> That's staying in. Too. Speaking of pointing out my deficiencies, you need to come down to Ernestine and Hazel's. <laughs> Don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them about Ernestine and Hazel's, Jonathan. Ernestine and Hazel's is one of our favorite places in Memphis. Probably. Probably our favorite because they keep having us back there to play every week. We and gotta- they have graciously... Uh, allowed us to, to interview most of the people yes. on this season. And they support live jazz. They're go the figure. Best. Yeah, right? Great place. <laughs> great great place. vibe. You should go Burgers. check it out. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Mercy. Soul Burgers. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to Memphis Machine. We are at Opera Memphis with Ned Candy and Michael Shaker. Saker. Saker. Shake, not shaker. I heard baker and shaker, Michael Saker. And candlestick maker. And candlestick maker. Uh, this is going well so far. So far. <laughs> <laughs> this is going great. Um, we are here to explore Opera Memphis and, and uh, shed some light on what I can. Well, of course, I'm, I'm somewhat biased. Uh, my wife works here, but I do I, I do love Opera Memphis, and it, it has shown some light on the realm of opera to me in, in, in a new light. So let's go ahead and get started. And uh, Ned. Hey. Hey, uh, why don't you give us a little rundown of, uh, of Opera Memphis and then you entering Opera Memphis. So uh, Opera Memphis is a 62-year-old company. Uh, it started years ago, Opera in Memphis. Before that, you know, Opera has been coming to Memphis since there was a Memphis, uh, usually with touring productions. For many years, that was the Metropolitan Opera on tour. Uh, Opera Memphis started because the opera came once a year, and so Opera Memphis started as essentially a community theater uh, that did opera, 
Uh, it was sort of supplemented Memphis open air theater at the Levitt Shell, uh, before it was the Levitt Shell, uh, where they would do in the summer, they would do light opera, operetta, musical theater, that sort of thing. So those were the two local organizations. Uh, opera Memphis then started growing uh, with the support of a lot of generous folks. And when the Met stopped touring in 1986, sort of took on the responsibility of, uh, of producing opera for the entire region. Mm. You know, we're the only professional opera company between St. Louis to the north, New Orleans to the south, uh, Little Rock to the west, and Nashville to the east. So we've, uh, we're responsible for a, a great big chunk of the country. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I got here in 2011, uh, moved here. I'd been living in Philadelphia with my wife and working in New York at the New York Television Festival, uh, which was very exciting five years uh, with a front row seat to the invention of web television and webisodes and YouTube and all that stuff. So it was a, a very fun five-year detour from opera. Uh, but at a certain point, the job just expanded so much that my boss wanted me to uh, just basically be at a desk all day and, and not do opera at all anymore. And I realized if I was going to be at a desk most of the time, I'd rather do that in opera than TV as much as I love it. And now I can just go back to enjoying TV. Great. Yeah. Michael. I joined uh, Opera Memphis full-time last year. Uh -huh. Prior to that, I had uh, been working uh, on short-term periods, starting with 30 Days of Opera three or four years ago. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with Opera Memphis's 30 Days of Opera, for the past seven years, throughout the month of September, we present... 30 days of daily free public performances all across the city. Yes. Whether it's farmer's markets, uh, street festivals, libraries, uh, retail shops, grocery stores. Uh, and I think we're increasingly having a really positive civic imprint uh, with the work we're doing in 30 days and beyond that. Uh, back when I came in uh, for the 30 days uh, three or four years ago, uh, it was a very last minute uh, thing. I just happened to have a September free and it turned into a really good uh, relationship. And I have come back since in the capacity of a rehearsal pianist, a conductor, and now those things are just some of what I do here. Uh, I do everything from conduct the main stage productions to hire the piano tuner and everything in between. Mm. Awesome. Um, so Ned, I, I, I know that you're not a big fan of, um, if I were to say you're making opera cool again, <laughs> I would say it never stopped being cool. See, exactly. Right. Yeah. But, but maybe, but maybe for some, now, I, you know, for myself, someone who, uh, opera has been peripheral mm -hmm. and, um, my folks didn't make a point of, mm -hmm. you know, exploring maybe more of the classic arts. It was more pop, whatever, suburban life. Um, but in uh, how would you describe your your uh, philosophy of of music of, of opera of, of what you're trying to do here? I mean, my philosophy of music is that there's good music and bad music, and that's it. But why uh, opera? Why opera? You know, opera. I personally enjoy opera, and I, I didn't grow up with opera either. I grew up with a mom who listened to show tunes, a dad who listened to the Beatles and Gregorian chant, sister who was into seventies folk, and a brother who listened to heavy metal. And I grew up listening to uh, post-punk, you know, Dead Kennedys, the Ramones, uh, and then into sort of eighties you know, whatever you would have called it. I think they called it New Rock at the time. I don't know what, what it's called now, but like they might be giants, things like that. Oh, yeah. They were great. Saw them live a couple of times when they uh, still have their first two albums on vinyl because I refused to give up my childhood. Uh, and uh, so I, I grew up with lots of different kinds of music. Like most people in America, though, I had, had, I had actually heard a ton of opera because, you know, you hear it in, in commercials and in movies and TV shows all the time. I mean, just uh, I was watching uh, Preacher on AMC. There's a whole Don Giovanni section in there with one of the vampires in New Orleans. Uh, you know, it's, it's still used in so many ways. So most people have heard so much more opera than they even know. So like, like most people, I'd, I'd heard a lot of it. Uh, when I first started getting into it, I, I came to opera from theater, which is what my training's in. And I'll be honest and say that opera sometimes 
it's a slower burn. You know, you, you, the first couple operas I worked on and saw, I enjoyed. I enjoyed the comedies especially. Uh, but it was when I was working on Madame Butterfly for the first time, which is the first opera this season. And the first time, at the end of Act One, at the end of this love duet, first, the first time the two singers sang full out with the full orchestra at the end of this love duet, and the two of them both just let it all out, unamplified, and, you know, it was like that old, you know, Maxell audio tape mm. commercial of the guy getting blown through the back of his chair, you know, it had that, that kind of power. So for me, what I love about opera is just the power that comes from a story being told by being sung, you know, the, the music in general uh, appeals to our primal selves. You know, we don't think about music in the same way, whether it's the beat that makes us bop our head along or the tune that makes us feel emotion. You know, mm -hmm. it's, I always uh, find it amazing that opera survived for so long in America before we had surtitles. You know, now you, there's a, a running translation of any, every opera that's in a foreign language, so you can follow the story, you know exactly who's saying what at what time. But the fact that it survived for so long, I think, is a testament to how powerful it is. Or when somebody sends around, you know, Paul Potts on um, Britain's Got Talent singing Nessun Dorma, people don't need to know what the context of that song is. They're just moved by, by these sounds. They feel something, you know, because of these sounds. So I think that's a, just an incredible power. And I, I think today, especially that ability to, in a world where so much of our entertainment is from a remove, it's, it's uh, you know, a little snarky or a little uh, jaded hipster irony kind of thing. I think so much of our entertainment is that uh, sometimes just having a, you know, balls to the wall, full out freak out from an opera, whether it's joy or sadness, it's it's just a rare thing today. So I, I always enjoy that part of it as well. That okay? Yes, agreed. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I want to while we're while we're on that thread. Um, so I've heard you say this a couple of times. Uh, one of which was on your TED talk, mm -hmm. all right, which we'll reference in the show notes. Um, but music theater versus opera, and and so you've said. If anybody wants to talk to me about this later, so this is later. <laughs> it is later, guys. Like a year and a half later. You know, music theater and opera diverged in America. In, in Europe, they have a phrase called music drama or just music theater, not musical theater uh, or the lyric theater. Sometimes, basically, anything where the story is told through music as well as speaking. They don't draw these same you know distinctions that we draw. And arguably, Les Misérables is an opera. No, full stop. It's an opera. Mm. There's not a single word of spoken dialogue. It was written in French. It's three hours long. It spans decades of time. And probably inarguably, you know, the Mikado or HMS Pinafore that we're doing, you could easily make the argument that it is a musical. The fact of the matter is that both of these mediums are stories told through song. Musicals, American musical theater as we think of it, usually has a dialogue component. But really in America, these the, the two started diverging because of two things. One is money. So at a certain point, musical theater, Broadway became for-profit, opera became not-for-profit, which meant if you don't need to worry about ticket sales so much, you can have you know less feel fewer feel good stories you don't need to worry as much about it being a huge smash to recoup your money and and make a lot of money uh, and I think that that's both good and bad it's allowed opera to tell some more mature and deeper stories that you wouldn't be able to find in other media in in America at the same time it has also led sometimes to a kind of art for art's sake mm. thing where you know if you don't think about how is this going to reach people you know if you don't want your art to reach and move lots and lots of people then you're you're probably not thinking about your art the right way so uh you know in, in both cases it's sort of the two halves of the same art that of that of these two branches that that shouldn't have broken away i think both of them can you know learn from each other and support each other uh then i think the other thing is the other big divergence was in technology musical theater is now almost always amplified uh, and opera is not. So when people hear the operatic voice and they think it sounds so different, 
it is different because it's produced differently because you have to be heard not not from this little piece of technology right. and it's from my mouth but you have to be heard from somebody a thousand feet away in a room full of uh, hundreds if not thousands of other people and so it's just a different it's a different thing it's the same reason why you know people think of acting uh, operatic acting as being overblown part of that is because for many decades you were in this huge opera house you had to tell a story that was possibly in a foreign language mm -hmm. and so you did get Get these big gestures and these, you know, these things, you know, that's been gone for 20, 30, 40 years, really. But of course, since most of us still know opera through commercials and, you know, TV shows and cartoons, you know, uh, uh, it, popular culture hasn't quite caught up with where things are. Um, I do think that I, I have learned since that TED talk, somebody said something to me in a conversation a couple months afterwards, that for them, it's, it is a spectrum, but the spectrum is about what's more important, the words or the music. And that in musical theater, the words are a little more important, and in opera, the music is a little more important. Mm. And, and that, I, I, that is probably the closest I've come to thinking, yeah, okay, I, I, I see that. Uh, and I, I think some of that actually might be just a, because as Americans uh, who speak English, we're hearing musical theater, we hear the words, so it's important that we understand them, and, it's, and, and that's how we ingest a lot of the story. So, uh, but it, you know, even so, I, I do think that there's something, something to that. And it's why there are a lot of musicals where someone who can't really sing something can get through something by kind of speak singing or, or whatever, because they could still tell the story you right. know, with the music backing them up. But that's, uh, that's probably a longer answer than, no, than you perfect. wanted. But, <laughs> but really, for me, that's what it is. And I, I do think that people, anybody who loves musical theater who does not try out opera is doing themselves a disservice and very much vice versa. And, you know, I, I said earlier, I ran a TV festival for five years. And, you know, certainly at the time I started doing it, people would have considered it, quote unquote, low art. I don't yeah. know that they still would have said that. But, you know, the the interesting thing about opera is that everybody should try it out a couple of times and decide if they like it. Uh, it's an option for you. And if you love music, if you love theater, if you love poetry, you should try it out and try it out a couple of times. And then if you don't like any of them, for God's sake, do something else, you know, <laughs> don't, don't torture yourself. You know, yeah. not everybody likes everything. That's totally fine too. But you know, with opera, I just spend a lot of my time as, as both of you have heard, trying to convince people who think they don't like it, uh, though they've never actually been to one. Michael. So, so Ned mentioned, uh, and I totally agree with that. That today, even though people may say, I, "I don't like opera," I don't like symphonic music. You're you're saturated with it when you go see films. You're saturated you're, you, when you watch AMC. You know, yeah, operas quoted. There, there's you, you can't you can't say you haven't heard it. So, um, or someone can't say that. Why why are you in this in this vein of music? Why, how did you land and decide? Okay, this is this is where I'm going to at least stay for a while musically. I was always that classical music nerd who, uh, unlike Ned, tried to diverge into more popular culture and always failed miserably. Mm. Uh, but so I always knew that I wanted to conduct. It wasn't until graduate school and just after that that opera made the most sense for me uh, uh, and then become a, became a real love for me. It was the intersection of my talents and um, interests. It was where uh, piano met conducting, met uh, my love for working with singers and mm -hmm. my appreciation for their dynamic personalities, and as well as uh, my love for storytelling and theater. Since then, uh, in great part thanks to my time with Opera Memphis, it has uh, made me appreciate more about popular culture mm. um, and all of the things that it has in common. And like Ned said, uh, how there is such, there should be such little uh, distinction between opera and musical theater and pop culture. Right. Um, also since uh, landing in the opera world, I have come to appreciate its, how its unique storytelling capabilities um, are unique in the other realms of um, 
music and theater, uh, because with the combination of music and text and storytelling and all the elements that go into it, it has the a very unique capability to promote empathy. Hmm. And a lot of the people who are um, advocates for the art form today are just emphasizing the empathy part of opera and how uh, few art forms, few performing arts can take us outside of ourselves and make us appreciate the u- the unique uh, perspectives of these characters and their um, struggles or their joys. Uh, a mother would have a very difficult time not sympathizing with Chocho-san in Madama Butterfly, mm. who struggles with um, whether to... No spoilers. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Struggles with issues confronting certain mothers in, yeah. <laughs> in very difficult circumstances. Okay, but, but you just said something I definitely want to jump on, and that's uh, maybe the uh, a, a, a cultural norm would, would, would think, well, opera, symphonic music, that's very intellectual. It's very academic. And they would completely miss out. This, no, there's, there's, there are hearts being broken. There, there are lives being um, restored. And I mean, the, this, this exploration of the human condition, gut wrenching. Like that, that's so. Um, my, my testimony of, of the short time I've been in, in the orbit of Opera Memphis is that you just, you have to go. You just have to go and. And and I actually say this about any kind of live music, like you have to go see human beings come together and do this thing, and be in the present. It's because it's, it's different than a five-inch screen, or or watching it on television. And and even just growing up, when I was flipping the radio station before Spotify, um, you know, it's like opera. I could I could park it there for a minute, and I just was like, well, I I, I have no context. I don't. I have no idea what's happening. I just fly right by it. Um, it Tell the people what, what's it like conducting an opera when everything has come together. The tech has come together. The singer, like when everything's humming, what what what's that feel like? It's amazing. And what you said about um, how you just have to go see it and see all the people um, putting this stuff together at Opera Memphis, we do promote a real open door culture. We want the community to come see what we do here, whether it's at our um, WKNO previews at the Clark Opera Memphis Center, uh, not just the performances, but also the at at uh, the Germantown Performing Arts Center, but also the performances throughout Thirty Days of Opera mm. at the Midtown Festival, uh, and we are having open rehearsals throughout the month of September uh, for uh, one of the productions we're doing thir- during Thirty Days of Opera, which is moving on up. Moving up up in the world. world. I do that every time. (laughs) (laughs) Moving up in the world. Uh, This great piece inspired by an elevator worker at the Crosstown Concourse. And there will be rehearsals available um, to attend during the the, uh, Cooper Young Festival on the 15th, Mm -hmm. I think, of September. So people can actually come see what I get to experience Mm -hmm. uh, putting it all together um, all the time. And it is... It is thrilling. It is the ultimate collaboration. Uh, there is nothing greater than uh, letting the best of every musician shine. Mm. Uh, and something that I'm, I'm personally working on as a conductor is to trust other uh, artists to let them uh, let let their strengths shine out the greatest that they can. Uh, and, that, and that's about trust. And that's something that just comes, I think, with time. Uh, so yes, come see a rehearsal, see a performance and see us all put this big puzzle piece together. Yes. And I mean, speaking of which, how many, how many human beings are, are pulling together to, to bring this off? And I mean, I know anywhere from two, just duos, maybe with, with, uh, with, uh, 30 days all the way up to. With the larger produ- production, you've you, you've got massive, yeah. I mean, what, gosh, I did I did the full time job equivalent thing my first year here before my first Rotary Club talk, and then I realized actually they just wanted me to bring in singers. They didn't want to hear all the statistics, but <laughs> but the uh, uh, you know for a show like Madame Butterfly, let's say we would have uh, so six seven principal singers, uh, chorus of fourteen. Uh, is that right? Fifteen. Fifteen. Uh, 
one non-speaking extra, a child. Uh, we would have stage management and directing team of three, uh, conductor, director, uh, costume shop, several folks doing that, uh, both creating and backstage, doing the costumes, lighting designer, assistant lighting designer. Uh, we would have backstage crew, probably 10 or 15 folks throughout the course of it. In the pit, what, 30? 30, 35. 35 in the pit. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's and and that's actually pretty small mm. <laughs> for for some of the things that that uh, that we do. You know, there are operas that you know, like Strauss's Zalome, which we would love to do, where the reduced orchestration is eighty two, right. oh. and it was written for I think one hundred and twelve or like one hundred and fifteen instruments. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I know, and it, it's uh, and again, it's it's one of those things where. Uh, we, we talk about this a lot about size and about, uh, you know, about how best to tell the stories because, you know, obviously when, when people think about opera, they think about the scope and the scale to some extent. You know, the, the famous quote that was never actually said, but it's still a good quote, so I'll make it, was that Napoleon <laughs> said, the only thing more expensive than war is opera. Uh, he didn't actually say it, but isn't that a great that quote? That is a great quote. <laughs> Because, you know, you can put so much uh, into it. You don't need to. Uh, and we always try to play a nice sort of money ball in terms of creating the best possible experience we possibly can. Uh, but, you know, there are pieces that we do that, you know, have 50 or 60 uh, musicians uh, that we, you know, w w we couldn't even do. And, you know, we would have to find a special uh, place to do them. Uh, I'm trying to think of the largest chorus we've had in a while. I guess for Bohem, we had 18 plus a children's chorus of 12 uh, mm. plus two supers, you know, just in the chorus, that is. So, uh, so yeah, it, it takes a lot of people, uh, to all of them working at the top of their game to, to make this stuff come together. So how much of a role do uh, Memphis musicians and vocalists play and, uh, at Opera Memphis? And, and we might want to get into like, just what it's life like to try to be like an operatic vocalist. You know I mean? Just that life. The Memphis Symphony Orchestra has been our uh, most consistent partner uh, mm -hmm. through our productions uh, in the last several years. Uh, I love working with them. They're great, great players uh, and uh, dedicated in everything that they perform. Uh, this, we're lucky in Memphis to have a really excellent pool of singers, local singers to choose from who are also very invested in this opera company and love performing with us, whether it's someone uh, like Chelsea Miller, who was originally from Memphis, uh, a soprano who uh, went through the Young Artist Program with uh, the University of Memphis and Opera Memphis. And we're lucky enough to still have her in town and we cast her uh, nearly in every production we do <laughs> because she is worth it and that talented and we want to, her to go off and do amazing things outside of Memphis but not really <laughs> <laughs> no of course we do she was in Ohio at uh, Ohio Late Opera this summer she's going to be uh, at Anchorage Opera uh, this fall so she was in Chautauqua Opera two years ago so nice yeah, you know she's That's great uh, yeah, eventually we'll, uh, we won't be able to get her as frequently, but it'll all be to the good. Yeah. But, uh, and then all the way to youth choruses and the, the young singers that make up the conservatory, the summer conservatory. There's uh, a lot of phenomenal talent in Memphis, and we love to uh, invest in it, and they love to give back to us with their talent. The, uh, and our shows range. There are some shows we do that are almost entirely Memphis singers. Mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of the main stage shows, uh, we do bring in talent from, you know, we bring in singers from the Met. We bring in singers from Europe, uh, folks who've sung all over. Uh, we have a very good reputation with singers. Not that we pay a lot, but that we really respect singers, that we do our best to take good care of them and really... Uh, have a, a sort of no BS arts focused experience that it really just is about how can we all work together to create the best performances we could possibly create. So that's something we've worked very hard uh, to create here. So we, uh, you know, for Madam Butterfly, we're bringing in uh, a couple of singers from out of town. Uh, Reggie Smith will be coming from San Francisco Opera. Uh, Yuna Lee, who is singing Madam Butterfly, she's sung this role on pretty much every continent that has an opera house. Uh, she's sung it, I, I think Antarctica maybe, probably she hasn't mm. uh, uh, sung it there. But the, uh, 
so we're bringing her in. Uh, Madam Butterfly is a, a bit of a specialist role in, in a lot of ways. Uh, then we have several other local singers uh, playing her family, uh, other, other folks uh, around. We've got our company artists who are with us for the whole year, one of whom, Philip Heimbrook, is uh, local uh, already, and one of whom, Stephanie Dosh, is going to be joining us for a year. She'll live here for a year and perform in multiple shows as a part of the sort of journeyman uh, part of her, of her career. In terms of how is it for uh, an opera singer, uh, I, I would tell you what I tell everybody is if there is anything else in the world that will make you happy, do that instead. <laughs> uh, because nice. it I've is... I've heard stories about oh, auditioning and, and just... You know, it's uh, for any role we are casting, I could off the top of my head list 10 to 15 singers that I would happily cast and I don't have a good memory. Right. You know, if I went to my files, I could increase that to 50 or 75. If I open it up to auditions from folks in New York, just folks who have agents in New York, uh, you know, that'll be another 75. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, for any role, there are hundreds of singers who want to sing that role and that's, you know, uh, that's a hard life. That's not a life I would choose for myself. I started out as an actor, and uh, after about two years, I thought, this is terrible. <laughs> this is terrible. I, would, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Uh, you know, the life of auditioning, not knowing what's coming next. Uh, that said, there are people for whom this is the thing that they want to do. And, you know, I suppose even, you know, if, if I... If I wanted to make money, I would do something different. I do like knowing where I'm going to be a week from now or a month from now, which is why I'm a general director and, and not a freelancer. But uh, the life of a singer is very hard. It's one of the reasons why we're trying constantly to find new ways to hire them. For instance, we launched a few years back a Christmas caroling program, which basically is almost more of a referral service. So if you want a Christmas carol, you know, an acapella quartet in Victorian garb to come to your, uh, your company Christmas party, uh, we will provide those singers and we w rehearse with them so they all know the same sort of core book. But the money is essentially just passed through. It's just a way to put some money in the pockets of local singers. Uh, because if, if you want to be a full-time professional opera singer, there is not enough work in Memphis for right. you to do that. So you could be based in Memphis, like Mary Wilson or Chelsea, and work outside of town sometimes. Uh, or you could do, you, you know, there are people who have other, you know, who teach, uh, who do other things as well. But, you know, the, it's, it's a hard, hard life. These are people who dedicate themselves to this, throw themselves into it 100%. I have incredible respect for them for doing that, uh, mainly because, as I like to tell people, I'm a huge failure. My dream was to be a Shakespearean actor. I failed at it miserably. And I'm so much happier <laughs> because I failed at it young enough to go and do something I'm actually good at. Uh, so the, uh, so it's, uh, I'm guessing that the life of any musician uh, is like that, and I, I don't know enough about the life of a gig musician in Memphis to, mm. to compare it. Um, but I, I, we also, as with things like Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, we're always looking for ways to intersect with working musicians and and make sure that you know Memphis, which really is the music city, you know, uh, right. uh, is a place where people from different genres or different backgrounds are coming together and, and performing together, listening to each other, learning from each other, because you know any, any opera singer who can't learn from a hip hop artist or a, a, a punk rock screamer, if, if they can't learn something from listening to that person, they're not trying. Oh, wow. Yeah. Speaking of Bohemian Rhapsody, what, what Jonathan and I got to participate uh, at the Levitt Shell was that the close of Thirty Days, or was that the close of? It was towards the end. Towards, the, but it was was it was it officially attached, or was that just happened? Oh, it is. Levitchell is by far the biggest deal performance we have throughout Thirty Days of Opera. There, okay, so so that and that and we a lot of fun. And we played we played Bohem Queen's Which Bohemian Rhapsody. Closes the whole program and has for the last five. And or how, six how many years. singers did, uh, was it? Usually, it's actually bigger than what we had last year um, because we were rehearsing um, La Traviata at the same time. Uh, we had to uh, split our forces that night but uh, fortunately the staff 
the administrative staff of Opera Memphis, many of whom are singers as well, stepped up and joined us on stage uh, for that concert. And it was actually one of the best renditions of Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> oh, that we've ever had. Yeah. It, it, it was a blast. So. Yeah. It, how unique is 30 Days? Speaking of 30 Days, is, is that a unique thing to uh, Opera Memphis? Or uh? So, yes. Uh, what I would say is the stuff that we do, you know, this idea of going and popping up, uh, doing free performances, you know, many of, of many other opera companies have been doing stuff like that, and places like Philadelphia Opera were doing really fantastic pop-ups, very ornate things, and you know, people were doing pop-ups in grocery store, all that sort of stuff. I think the the difference is we were the first company to dedicate so much of our resources in a year to saying we're going to do this for an entire month, and we are going to value these performances in a similar way. We're gonna take these seriously. They're mm -hmm. not an add-on, they're not a goof, they're not an appetizer, that if the only opera somebody hears in an, in an entire year or in a decade is a single aria that we sing at Otherland's Coffee, we want that to be the most amazing operatic experience it can possibly be. So mm -hmm. we take it we take it very seriously. It's mm -hmm. why in the, the first year, I went to every performance but one. Uh, and that was just one, I just could not make it to that one. But, uh, you know, we take it very seriously. Um, I think also as, as it's developed over the course of the years, and there are many other companies that have done 30 days of opera, 40 days of opera, seven days of opera, uh, 31 days of opera awesomeness, uh, which is <laughs> way too long a title. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't scan nearly as nicely. Uh, some of them have, have asked us for advice and help and have really nicely shaped it to fit their city. Uh, and we are, we give, we're perfectly happy to have people do it, you know, and, and share what we've learned, mm. certainly. Um, and others have not, have, have not uh, done, done that courtesy. Uh, but that's okay. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And like I said, we, we sort of looked at what are other people doing that's interesting? How do we make that relevant to Memphis? And you know, even just doing it for 30 days was all about saying, what would make Memphis, what would show Memphis that we mean it? Mm. Well, doing something every day for a month, we're just, we're not fooling around. This is something we're serious about. Uh, it's not, it's not a gimmick. This is a part of who we are now. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we, that we did, we did because Memphis is still a city where people talk to each other, you know, people gossip, people talk after church, they talk at the water cooler. Uh, and we knew that people would say, the weirdest thing happened to me at the dog park yesterday. These people came up and started singing, but instead of singing, they were meowing. And somebody would say, oh my God, I was in Overton Square and somebody drove up on the back of a pickup and serenaded me at brunch, you know, like we knew that that would happen and it did, you know, it's, we're, we're a very uh, well-sized community for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I think if we had tried to do this in New York, nobody would have noticed. It would just have been too big. It would have been too spread out. You know, mm -hmm. we couldn't have made it enough of an event. Uh, and you know, I think the more successful versions of this that that other colleagues have done are in medium uh, and smaller uh, size companies for for a number of reasons. Let's um, not forget the last day of that too. What, what do you do, like? 80, 80 uh, visits 30, or 30 locations. I, I, kidding, yeah. We go to 30 different locations and sing, sing at 30 different locations. All in one day. We're yeah, not yeah. doing that this no, year. <laughs> that was a little insane. You know, it, I, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I'm the kind of boss I try, I say, I, I try never to ask the staff to do anything that I wouldn't do myself, whether it's, you know, for Cooper Young, I try to always be one of the people who goes to set up at six in the morning. You know, uh, I try to do that. The problem is I don't actually sing. I can't sing worth a damn. So with something like that, I think it's it's always harder because I, I sometimes will ask people to do things that maybe are, are a little too ambitious because I don't really understand what I'm, what I'm asking for. It just sounds so cool. Uh, so sometimes I have to ask for those things. <laughs> We do have a really fantastic uh, closer for this year's 30 Days of Opera. On September 30th, we're going to be doing a block party at Life Church at the corner of Jackson. Living, Living Hope. Sorry, Living Hope Church at the corner of uh, Jackson and McLean. Mm. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think you guys have made that connection for us, right? With Living Hope. Was that possible? Yes. Yes. That was yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, yeah, and so with, with the 30 days, uh, what I got to witness last year was everything from duos, trios, all the way up to uh, uh, the Playground King. Was that 
the king. What was that called? Is that the correct? playground king? The that playground is king at, at Shelby Farms at, in, in the uh, in the in the park. Literally, it, yeah, it's but, a playground opera. Nice. And uh, With the singers tumbling around and, and everything. It was it was a blast. <laughs> Our was, director of operations four years ago, uh, five years ago. From the it was the very first year. Uh, yeah, put together a really phenomenal short and tight children's opera um, for four opera singers to perform on a playground. This, I guess, is the first year that we will not be presenting mm. it. Mm. Uh, we just agreed that it needed to sure. have a break. And uh, But there will be still plenty of events for families to attend throughout the month. That's great. So so 30 days, uh, um, a, a, a an intentional pollinization of opera for the city, maybe? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we first thought of it as guerrilla marketing, uh, first and foremost. That's great. But it really has grown beyond that. And I think part of that is the experience that I've had you know, at, at the libraries in particular, you know, you go to some of the libraries in, uh, you know, neighborhoods that don't have artistic resources and, and, you know, you might be performing for five or six kids, right. but you see the, the attention they give it, they're, they're just in awe, they're, they're uh, enraptured by it. Well, these kids aren't going to buy a ticket to, they don't have the money and they're not going to buy a ticket next year or the year after, but A, that experience in and of itself has value. You can't put a monetary value on it, but I was there. I feel that value. Oh, that, yeah. that, that is one of the reasons we do this kind of thing. But, you know, who's to say that 10 years from now when that kid's in college, they don't have a roommate who's going to an opera and has a spare ticket, and all of a sudden, they just have this little seed. So, you know, pollinization is, is a great word, and I think it's, uh, as more and more, this is the third year in a row where as a part of 30 Days, we are doing a full opera. Hmm. Uh, now, that's, you know, it's a short opera, it's 20 minutes long, it's small forces, but it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, it's a story, and if you go and you see that, you've seen an opera, you can no longer say, oh, I've never seen an opera you'll, you'll right. have seen one uh, that's becoming a bigger and bigger part of what this is but the whole thing has really been about redefining what our mission is who we are and what we do because you know the, one of the initial things that I noticed when I first took this job that that got me thinking uh, along the lines that led to 30 days was there was some form we were filling out for a grant and it was asking how many people we'd reached and at the time, they were just writing how many tickets we had sold uh, to the shows. And I mm. said, well, what about you know the WKNO preview? That's free. Are we counting those people? No. Well, that's an hour of music. That's free. What about the education programs that we tour around? No, we're not counting those. What about those? You know, we were only counting the people who had paid to come and see something. And that just seemed idiotic. <laughs> you know, that just seemed uh, absurd to me. And... The uh, it really made me want to redefine. If anything, I feel like the things that we do sh for free should should count twice because mm. we're we're not making money back on them. You know, we're going out and finding the money and and getting the donations uh, to try to ensure that exposure, that the ability to participate in great art is a, a basic human right. That it's mm. not the whipped cream of life. It is the meat and potatoes of life. Oh, and, that's good. Yeah, and it and it should be. Preach. You know, That's good. Yeah, sorry. I get. I mean, when I talk thirty days, Michael's heard it all before. But it is, you know, this this stuff is is important. And I think uh, in a city like Memphis that has so many challenges with transit, uh, something like thirty days where we are spreading ourselves out is really important. My friend Kevin grew up in the Bronx, and uh, you know, he didn't have. Like, he wouldn't have had access to opera and theater and, and, you know, all of these things in walking distance of his neighborhood. But because of the subway, he could get to any cultural event in the city. And there are tons of cultural events in New York that are free. Hmm. And that, you know, th that opportunity should be, again, that, that's a basic human right. And right now, it's not one that everybody in Memphis can, can take part in. Wow. So you mentioned the uh, educational reach outreach. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, can we talk about that and and the uh, summer conservatory for teens? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the uh, there's an education tour that we have been doing in the spring um, over the past several years. Uh, it's a kids show that lasts about forty minutes, and 
our director of operations, Sarah Squire, has been the one spearheading that and sometimes directing that. They're always hilarious. Um, how many schools do we reach typically? Oh gosh, somewhere I think around thirty, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, mm. maybe forty. Uh, it it depends. It varies from year to year. I think probably closer to forty because it's two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, between 30 and 40. I know they do multiples in a day. So. And the title we did last year was... The Ugly Duckling. The Ugly Duckling. Yeah. Uh, we might actually be bringing the Playground King back this spring mm. as a uh, an extended version of it uh, for the school tour. And that one uh, incorporates a lot of our local singers, a lot of the young artists uh, of Opera Memphis. Um, and then the Summer Conservatory has two programs, one for younger singers, one for older singers, um, all under 18. And uh, they do scenes from operas. They do, they have vocal training. They, uh, what, what am I missing? They have acting training, mm -hmm. sometimes stage combat. Uh, they do all kinds of things. Last year they did something cool where uh, they, they designed opera companies, like fictional opera companies in a season and all this stuff, and then presented what the season was going to be. It was, uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's a great program. That is cool. Um, so if, if, I don't know if you guys look at it this way, but uh, if you have 30 days as, as a, being a type of pollinization of guerrilla marketing, so to speak, and then you open it up to... Uh, um, Oh, what you did at the Cooper Young Festival with, with the uh, the workshop or the open rehearsal—that's mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, a little bit more of a—is that a kind of broadening, getting larger? And then you have the festival, mm -hmm. right? And that's and that's incorporating. Uh, it's that gray area in between uh, the uh, Thirty Days of Opera and the more main stage productions that we do that is the most interesting area to explore. Mm -hmm. And that's not just the case for Opera Memphis, that's for all opera companies in America and beyond. They're really trying to figure out what the right recipe is to engage people of our of our generation of uh, who are uh, connected to Netflix and YouTube who aren't interested to devote an hour or more to anything, right. uh, period. Um, so that, it's a challenge, and it is uh, a recipe that, that we're all playing with. And last year, we had a series that we referred to as the omakase, which is the Japanese word for a uh, meal curated by a chef around a specific theme. So we had them around certain holidays, Halloween, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, and uh, then the end of the season. And uh, it was really interesting and really successful in a lot of ways and we learned a lot about what works and what doesn't and this year we're not referring to it as omakase anymore it's uh going to be around specific uh holidays again or around specific themes again uh but we'll market it for each of those specific um events the there will be more information about that coming out soon mm. but again it's just us playing around with that gray area and finding out what works the best when I sometimes when I talk uh, or when I give talks about this, I say, you know, Opera for many years was a store that sold white button down shirts. And uh. there's always a need for white button down shirts. But but retail has changed. You can't you can no longer have a store that sells just white button down shirts. You need to have some jeans and maybe some keychains and some T-shirts and some other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so you you need to do that to stay relevant. Uh, and you know the question is: Is opera going to transform and turn into something that makes sense in the 21st century in Memphis, or will it become a sort of version of Irish step dancing, uh, just existing in a very niche <laughs> kind of world? You know, it doesn't go away. I mean, opera will never go away so long as the scores are there. I mean, anybody can pick one up and start singing. Mm -hmm. uh, but the question is what. What is most relevant to this to this city today, and how do we ensure that we could do as much of it as possible to reach as many people as possible? And, and is that expressed mostly in, in the festival? Right? Is that? Gosh, you know, I, I I think of everything. I do think I think of our season as as a three legged stool, and I think of thirty days as one piece. And that's you know, if you maybe thought of that as listening to the radio and just mm -hmm. like picking up singles, and then you know the the main stage works that we do are the equivalent of you know just buying a full album or maybe even a box set and then the festival is more like the underground 
you know, uh, 24 hour concert that you go to rave mm-hmm. somewhere, you know, uh, that nobody knows about, you know, it's a little more underground, uh, but also accessible. So, you know, those, those three things I think all have, have equal weight and there are people who enjoy all three, uh, and there are people who enjoy two out of the three and there are some people who are really just in it for one and, and that's fine. You know, that, that's why the guerrilla marketing thing in the end, we realized, you know, the we shouldn't devalue these experiences just because somebody doesn't buy a ticket. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I I love little glimpses of something. I love, uh, you know, you can enjoy a little bit of something and not want to go and have a full meal of it, and that's also totally fine. Let's talk about last the last festival festival where you had this this uh, diverse. Uh, we had a theme of wrestling, mm-hmm. right? We had uh, um, uh, hip hop. Uh, what the theme? A malaria, racial. <laughs> yeah. uh, t- I mean, it was like the the the, the cornucopia of, of themes. Did, did, talk about that. Uh, last year's season was uh, quite a festival of styles. Uh, we had something old and something new. The old was a uh, three hundred year old Baroque opera that Ned had directed at uh, Yale University uh, a, a 10 or so years ago and uh, called The Triumph of Honor by the very popular and well-known composer Alessandro Scarlatti. Mm. I'm shaking my head for those of you who can't <laughs> see me. Uh, Scarlatti, I, I said before getting to know the piece. He was sort of the Jello Biafra of early, <laughs> of early Baroque opera. That's, what I, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, but the piece really grew on me, and uh, it was a hilarious production. It turned into uh, a 90s sitcom, and I, I refer yes. to it affectionately as Friends, the Baroque opera. Yes, yes. Uh, in addition, our other big production during the festival was something that Opera Memphis has been uh, uh, developing, had been developing for several years, and was a sequel to Opera Memphis's uh, Ghosts of Crosstown, which was a series of premieres of short operas three years ago uh, um, about um, uh, employees who worked at the now. Uh, Crosstown Concourse Building, then the Sears Distribution Center. Uh, that there was such enthusiasm around that that it turned into this sequel, the Opera 901 Showcase, which was four brand new operas uh, about Memphis, uh, people from Memphis, ideas around Memphis, places in Memphis, uh, by mostly Memphians. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry Dye wrote. Uh, most of the libretti, the the text for those operas, and we had a lot of local uh, composers writing the music. Uh, Sam Shoup, who um, is a very prominent yeah. commercial music musician around town, and is also a professor at the University of Memphis now. Uh, um, uh, Robert Patterson, who is a great local com- local composer, who also uh, plays horn in the Memphis Symphony Orchestra. Uh, who am I forgetting? Uh, well, uh, Kamala Sankaram uh, is the non-Memphis composer, and we did deliberately choose one non-Memphis composer because we wanted to look at the impact of Memphis music on the rest of the world, mm. you know, to, to examine that. And Kamala is an uh, Indian American composer uh, who... Her her side hustle is a Bollywood surf band uh, called Bombay great. Ricky. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, the music is just crazy. She's a coloratura soprano who also has a degree in neuroscience. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's insane. And, uh, you know, I thought that, you know, she's somebody who is able to bring together lots of different styles of music and examine them. And so I thought she'd be the perfect person to sort of look at and think about how opera, how Memphis music has has bled into the rest of music and impacted the rest of music and actually even the piece she wrote there were it was two characters uh, set on the uh, Mississippi River and one of them who was the visitor started out in this very sort of formal uh, tone row kind of very formal atonal, atonal classical mm-hmm. form and the other was very blues and over the to- over the course of the piece the one who was in this very atonal world slowly warmed 
warms up and and joins into this blues world that's sort of seduced by the sound and it's one of those things that you know it's funny you mentioned earlier about people worry about classical music mm -hmm. going over their head or whatever like that sounded really heady and and artsy fartsy or whatever you don't you didn't need to know that to enjoy it but knowing it adds a little something to it it's like knowing statistics in baseball like you don't need to know the statistics to enjoy a game but for a lot of people they add to it so so just as a sidebar there um so yeah it was sam uh, it was marco pave did the the hip-hop opera uh, uh which was not a full piece but scenes from a larger piece uh i referred to it a couple of times as a concept album at mm -hmm. least for now as he develops the larger piece um and so is Marco Sam, right? Yeah, because the fifth one actually, we uh, we brought back a piece from Ghosts of Crosstown, uh, moving up in the world. This moving up that in we're the world. Be, uh, touring. Yes, moving up. <laughs> moving the up world. in the world. Because he <laughs> is in an elevator, and so he's moving up in the world. Yeah. All right. Uh, but I would say that Opera Memphis um, and many other American opera companies are firmly committed to doing new works and presenting mm -hmm. and commissioning new works. We are fortunate to be in this new golden age of uh, American opera. And five years ago, you would not have encountered nearly as many American opera companies presenting new works. And fortunately now, most companies recognize the importance it has, uh, especially when it comes to connecting local communities to their local opera company. No, that's great. Uh, and vice versa. So this year, we are, um, we've, we've co-commissioned with a number of other opera companies and the U.S. Department of Defense in their first ever opera commission to present, to bring back the team that brought Moving Up in the World and just moving up. Moving up in the world. Uh, librettist Jerry Dye and the composer Zachary Redler mm. uh, to do a new opera called um, The Falling and the Rising, which we will present as part of this year's festival and will be the cornerstone for this year's festival. It's based on interviews with uh, a number of wounded vets. And uh, it tells the story, first of all, of this uh, in the first scene of a uh, female soldier recording a Skype message to her daughter um, across the seas. And uh, because she cannot uh, wish her daughter happy, happy birthday on her birthday because she'll be actually deployed at that moment. And it's heartbreaking. Mm. Just that first scene is so sweet and touching. And I was crying a year ago when I was playing through it for the first time. And uh, after that, she is injured and then goes into a coma and has a bunch of um, uh, encounters with other um, soldiers that are uh, based on those interviews. Oh, wow. It's an amazing piece. Wow. When, when, when's that debut? That's uh, in April. April. Uh, I can't remember the exact date. No, oh, yeah. Uh, the first half of April. Yeah. First yeah. Half of April. Wonderful. Jonathan? What? What? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you, you, you're I was the still recovering from you're Department the of Defense with the, with the notes, and Opera. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. I was, yeah. and then I realized where I was going. I was like, oh, that's, that's nice. Well, this will be actually the first professional uh, production of that opera. It premiered last spring with uh, uh, mostly student cast yeah. at, yeah. Uh, in Fort Worth at Christian Brothers Texas, no, Texas, Texas Brothers. Christian University. Texas Christian. Yeah. And actually there was, there was a, a student cast, but there also was a cast of, uh, of singers from the field, U.S. Army Field Band and Chorus, which is the, the full name of the co-commissioning entity. Uh, so they did, uh, they alternated performances, which I wasn't entirely clear on, but uh, they did it half and half. And we're actually going to be doing it in New York uh, in January mm. with the U.S. Army Field Band uh, fielding most of the resources and we'll be uh, helping out and promoting and advising. Uh, and then we'll be doing it here in Memphis in April. Yeah, a little bird told me that um, <clears throat> Opera Memphis does if n as much, if not more, work than maybe uh, mm. the opera company in Houston. Is that is that is that that's that's just about? Or, <laughs> I, so, I believe what, what I was saying was that, uh, that the, what, there's a leader. Yeah, the, so there's a program at Opera America called the Leadership Intensive Program. Yes, and we've had a large number of employees uh, attend that. And that when I last checked, the only other company that had had as many go through it was Houston Grand Opera, which is 
ten times our size. And, well, the reason know, why I bring that yeah. up is that is that you guys are are, are doing it. There, there, there's there's not a whole lot of downtime, so yeah. to speak. I mean, there's there, there's a lot going on. Um, what what is we, we kind of touched on the philosophy of Upper Memphis, but what, you know, we, we always ask this question so far in our podcast of, of our guests: is what what are your hopes for for Memphis and, and how how Opera Memphis is is being engaged with uh, the betterment of the city? And and I would say that uh, that there are few communities that I know that identify with their local opera company as much as Memphians do, but there's still a lot of room for improvement and that there are still uh, people out there in Memphis who um, can be touched by the work that we do and by the product that we offer. So things like 30 Days does a great job with that, but we're always trying to figure out how um, to improve upon that model and reach newer audiences and for them to be uh, moved by the work that we do. Hmm. I mean, what I hope for for the city is that some of the great trends we see continue, some of the not so great trends reverse, but uh, that the city recognizes its own worth and specialness more. I think mm-hmm. I've never lived in a city where more people were down on the city or somehow think that problems that exist everywhere in every city are unique or that we've done something wrong or we don't deserve nice things or something. I, I'm always amazed by by that. It's uh, I've lived in a lot of cities and I would not trade Memphis for any of them. Mm. So I hope I hope that in terms of Opera Memphis, you know, our definition of success is that everybody knows we exist. Everybody is proud that we are their opera company. Everybody knows that they're invited to anything we do and that if they want to come, that they are able to, whatever they might be able to pay. That is my my oldest and only definition of, of what success looks like. Mm. Wonderful. So um, I want to respect you guys' time. I know we're kind of running long, um, but how can, speaking of that, right, how, how can people get involved uh, financially? <laughs> Well, they can always give us money. Right. Uh, that's yeah. always. So uh, I think that that, that what money channels is always might they welcome. look for? <laughs> uh, OperaMemphis.org uh, is is uh, uh, will tell you how to how to give money. I would say if you're already an opera fan, uh, or if you are ready, you know, jump in and see one of the productions this year. Madame Butterfly is a great first opera. Uh, if you are not entirely sure, uh, come to some Thirty Days performances. Come to see Moving Up in the World, or come to a WKNO preview, which has some of the best tunes from any opera and we've got you know drinks and food and it's kind of the best value in town actually so we're kind of crazy to do it but we do it uh so come to one of those and and get a sense and you know ease your way in if uh uh if you want to get involved as a volunteer, there are a lot of things that you can do to help out. And if you earn enough volunteer hours, then you get free tickets to the shows. So, you Ooh. know, that's a way that some people uh, who, you know, they're students or retirees or folks who, uh, you know, that that is the way that they both add value to the company and help the company out. But it also uh, gets them their, their tickets for the season. Uh, so that would be another way. And uh, I also would say that the... One of the hardest things for me as a Yankee moving to Memphis, uh, one of the hardest things has been getting people to talk about the negatives, to talk about what we could do better or what we're not doing well. You know, people always, it's very easy uh, and it's very frequent for people to tell us what we're doing that they like, but uh, really for us to get better, to be a better company and to serve the city better, we need more people giving us feedback about what, what isn't working. And as a New Yorker, I'm very used to that. We're terrified <laughs> I, I that, of being rude. You know, exactly. And I'm, you know, I'm used to someone saying, oh, I really like that. Yeah, that wasn't for me. You know, like just, and it, 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 uh, it's far more helpful. I yeah. Mean, it well, really it, it allows us, it allows us to start addressing things. I mean, I've learned over time, you know, to hang out near the bathrooms at intermission and try to eavesdrop and things like that. I learn a lot more. Um, but I would say, you know, we, we want to hear what you want from your opera company, what we could do. And we can't do everything. We're, we're a small company with limited resources, but we, we want to belong to everybody. We want to be the opera company of, of every Memphian. So a big way you could help is to help us figure that out. You know, this year, one of the reasons we're not doing the Playground King this year, though we love it, it's a great tradition, I've, is 
the goal of 30 days is to spread spread ourselves as thin as we can mm. to try to reach as many places and we realize we've been doing we've done the playground king for six years in the same two locations and by the time we we were sort of looking at that we said let's give it a year and next year let's bring it back hopefully expanding the places where we're doing it so it's it's not that we don't want to do it. It's not that we don't want to do it at Shelby Farms or, or Overton Park. We love both those venues. It's just how can we, we just want to make sure that we are also going to new places, places we've never been. And I think a, a big way to be helpful is if you have never seen Opera Memphis in your neighborhood, uh, email me. I'm net at operamemphis.org. If you've never seen us in your neighborhood and you want to, let me know because I take that very seriously. Uh, that would be hugely helpful, and it wouldn't cost you anything. That's great. That's, have, yeah, have you guys great. played Beale Street yet? Was, was, we <laughs> we have sung on Beale uh, a couple of times, uh, and you know it's funny with Thirty Days of Opera. When I was looking uh, for a sort of tagline to explain it really quickly, w the idea of we're going to bring Bohem to Beale Street mm. was the thing that people loved because someone someone told me early on in my time here that Memphis loves the intersection of high and low art, mm -hmm. which was hard for me because I don't acknowledge that as a real distinction. But I knew what they meant, and what they meant was Bohem on Beale Street. <laughs> and so uh, I would say blues are one of the highest art forms there is. So, uh, you know, we, we have performed there a few times. We would love to do more. Um, it's just, uh, as with everything, it's a matter of uh, uh, what's going to be the best time the, to reach the most people right. in the, you know, in the most exciting and interesting way. That's great. Well, gentlemen. Thank you, Ned, Michael. Thank you so much for spending thank time you. with thank us. You. This is great. I, and and uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, if opera is, is strange or new to you, just go see, like I said earlier, a, a bunch of human beings get together and make something beautiful. It, it, it will affect you. Thank you, gents. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Ned and Michael, thank you again for having us out at Opera Memphis. It was a delightful interview. I, I, I say that for everything. Everything's delightful in my world. Delightful. I say wonderful hang. and delightful hang. What else do we delightful say? Delightful hang, wonderful hang. But I'm sincere, dang it. Of course you are. I, I don't think anybody Gosh. questions your sincerity. I hope you got from this interview that you need to go see some opera. Um, maybe you only listen to R&B, hip-hop. There are R&B and hip-hop artists exploring opera. You need to maybe see, you only listen to country. You, there are country artists. You need to explore opera and, 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 and have that thing mess with you, challenge you. And bless you. Maybe you only listen to scream metal. Oh, gosh. I think we Sc covered that. Yeah. Scandinavian <laughs> screamo metal. Yeah, all right. We, we covered that. Uh, big thanks again. Uh, this is the close of our season. This is our first season. Hope you enjoyed Memphis Machine. We are looking forward to starting on season number du, 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 two. Du. Du. Oh, again, this season was brought to you by Snakebite Company, Redwire Audiovisual, and of course, our beloved Ernestine and Hazels. Where you can get the one and only Soul Burger. That was sad. Catch you next season. Bye.